The reading is taken from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, we've had a good few days couple of days together, one more day to go as well, the Lord's Day, a very special day to meditate on God's Word. But now we come to this psalm, um, Psalm 126. I really would like you to have it open, and we're going to follow it quite closely. The psalms are, of course, God's Word. So every little bit of the Scripture is God-breathed, and we didn't tamper with it. When we open the pages of the Bible, we are, in effect, opening the lips of God and allowing Him to communicate to us. Well, the Psalms, God's word, are almost without exception, there are some exceptions, but almost without exception, the prayers of people as well. So God is speaking to us through the prayers that his people have written and recorded. And and all the Psalms, they sort of understand the complexity of human life. And the variety of Bible truths are all sort of compressed and expressed in Hebrew poetry. Every aspect of salvation and um, the dimensions, both dimensions of the relationship which human beings have with God. So us towards God and God towards us, all expressed in these psalms. Now, those of us, and I think that probably includes most of us, that's why we're here this weekend. Those of us who are burdened about evangelism, those of us who want to see the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ getting out and about in society find in this particular psalm, Psalm 126, great comfort and challenge. And therefore, it's it's great just to be able to look together at this psalm. It divides very neatly into three sections. The first section is a sort of past joy. And then we have present sorrow. And then we have future hope. It's it's very, very straightforward. I'm not forcing anything onto this psalm. I'm just saying, now, what's this psalm about? Well, it it falls into these three sections. So let's look at them. First of all, the first three verses, the, the past joy. There is clearly here a remembrance of a blessed time. So the psalmist is looking back and and recalling A time, a season when things seem to be really good. Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly what that was. It may have been relief from famine. And you can imagine what a relief that would be when there was no food, no provision. And it could well be that they're thinking of, at last, the harvest has come. On the other hand, there may have been the end of a siege or a war. It may have been relief from captivity or a plague But when I've read around it, it seems to me that most Bible commentators think it's something to do with um, the people of God coming back from Babylon after 70 years of captivity. Now they are returning. But whatever it is, something miraculous had happened. And the psalmist is recalling this, this wonderful moment, which seemed almost like a dream to him. 
It, it just seemed too good to be true. He recalls what had gone on. He says very openly, this was the Lord's doing, and it led to laughter and joy and such excitement. So if you look at verse 1, the when, which is God's when, becomes the then. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we are like those who dream, dream then our mouth. Yet oh, God did great things. And isn't this wonderful? It's a marvelous thing for us. Three times in the first three verses, we read what God did. When the Lord brought back. And then at the end of verse 2, the Lord has done great things. And then verse 3, the Lord has done great things again. Five times we read words like laughter and joy and gladness and singing and praise. I don't know how much time you spend reflecting on the past. If you spend a lot of time, you're probably getting old. And uh, you know what old age is. It's a time in life when actions creak louder than words. And uh, if you've got to that stage, you probably do look back and uh, you remember certain things. But it is the Christian's privilege to look back on on sort of landmarks in our life. The moments of conversion. Now, for some, that's very recent, maybe this year. For others, it's a long, long time ago. For some, it was in the last millennium. But you think, oh, the moment when somebody explained the gospel to me. And yes, God was speaking to my heart. Yes, I called out on the name of the Lord. I was saved. I remember the impact, the joy, the thrill. And we look back. We could also, many of us, look back and think, uh, do you know there were times of tremendous blessing? I remember when I prayed about this, and oh, that happened. And actually, it was more than I anticipated. And I I remember when we were going through a time, I don't know, it may have been a UBM team, it might have been speaking, it could have been all sorts of things. And and didn't the Lord do such a wonderful thing in our hearts? It was so exuberant, he wanted to. And there are certain times in my Christian life, a a meeting in Leeds Town Hall years ago. I remember Gerard speaking at it, and the hall was absolutely packed with people. And oh, it took me days to get over the thrill of that particular meeting but as well if you're one of those and we've had christian biography plugged very much haven't we if you're one of those who reads christian biography you will have read of yes some people going through tough times and yet god answering and working in a wonderful way i read just very recently two or three weeks ago only a short biography of mary slesser from dundee this woman who came from such a dysfunctional family who went out to what we now call nigeria in africa And uh, did she go through tough times? Yes, she did. Did she see blessing? Immense blessing. Oh, oh, people groups were converted to Christ. People groups, she was told, you must not go there. You will be cannibalized. You will be killed. But she went there and she won them to Christ. You think, oh, this is marvelous. It It really is great. I look back even... Beach missions, I haven't been a Christian that long, a few years, but anyway, I remember Beach Mission saying St. Ives when we were running year after year, and literally, I'm not exaggerating, I would say we're not allowed to start this meeting till we have 250 children here, and we'd count them in, and when we got to 250, we'd start, but it's, it's not quite like that nowadays, is it? And times when they'd be preaching in the open air in Clandudno, And the widest part of the promenade would be blocked with the crowd listening to the preaching of the gospel. It's not quite like that nowadays. And when churches were bursting at the seams, 
It's not quite like that nowadays, unless it's, there's a bit of a syndrome going on in churches in the UK at the moment. The smaller churches are getting smaller and the bigger ones are getting bigger. But it's not particularly through great effective evangelism. It's through people just migrating from a small church to a big church. And, and you sort of think, dear me. I was talking with somebody whose father is the pastor in, in Mount Cop in, I think it's Staffordshire. And uh, I was saying, oh, do, do you know what happened there? And yes, he did. He knew their history. When every May bank holiday, spring bank holiday, we'd call it nowadays, 150,000 people would gather for gospel meetings in the open air. Now, okay, 200 years ago, but it's not like that nowadays, is it? Here's the psalmist recalling what had happened. But things have changed. And let older Christians start chatting for any length of time and they'll start to talk to you about how things have changed and the decline. And, and the feel that, I don't know, we're not just being effective. We're not being fruitful. We're not seeing the dramatic answers to prayer that once we expected. What's gone wrong? And the psalmist is reflecting in a similar sort of way. The present sorrow, you get it in verse 4. My version, bring back our captivity, O Lord. He's asking for a restoration of what had happened before to happen again. What, what, what has gone on in this psalm is that the sort of delirious happiness and relief is the mood of the first three verses. But now it's just a distant memory. There's a sudden transition in just six verses from deliverance to distress. And the psalmist is now in a situation which is parched and barren and all seems to be dry and infertile and fruitless. He, he, he thinks about the streams of the south or the Negeb, again, depending on what version you're using, which for 11 months of the year are dry and dusty. And then for just one month, a torrent of rain that would come and bring life. But he feels as though he's stuck in the middle of the 11 months at the moment. And it, it is so dry. Now, I travel around a lot and, and, and I'm often asked, what, what do you think the scene is in the UK as far as evangelism is concerned? And I have to say, I think it is very, very tough going at the moment. And yes, there are some churches that are growing, but I've explained why that is usually happening. And when I do hear of amazing things happening, you go and investigate and you find, well, actually, this is an exaggeration. This isn't really true. We're in tough, barren days at the moment. But significantly, the psalmist doesn't allow himself to sink in a sort of slough of despond. Interestingly, the remembrance of the past encourages him to pray for the present. That's what verse 4 is all about. He's turning to the Lord to pray, to cry out to God. He's saying, look, this has happened in the past. You did amazing things for us. But now, so I'm praying. What do you do if your memories are good? Or you've read about when times were better, but your experiences are very different. Well, first, I think we need to remind ourselves that we, too, are blessed. I think it's easy in the sort of situation we find ourselves in to develop a victim mentality where we think, oh, oh we are being persecuted. We're not being persecuted in Britain yet. It may come. We're under pressure and huge intimidation to be silent. 
especially if you work for the government. I really mean that. If you're working in education or health or social services or civil service, the pressure not to say anything, not to speak, not to make Christ known, not to witness is immense. And, and that then the, if we sort of succumb to that pressure, we, we meet together and, and we sort of share our, our difficulties and, and, and our worry and our anxiety. And we remember the past, but that sort of condemns us. No, no, no. We are not victims. Just stop and think for a moment of all that the Lord has done for us. Let's remind ourselves that we are immensely blessed. The God who created us loves us. Even though we've dared to defy him and shake our fists in his face, he's loved us. He's come into the world. He's, he's gone to a cross. And in such humiliation and shame, he's born in his own body our sin. The sin of the world laid on Jesus and he died for us and he was buried and he rose. And this risen Jesus is the one that we've had dealings with. He saved us. He's forgiven us by his spirit. He lives within us. He delights to hear us pray. We, we read the word. And yes, sometimes we've got to be disciplined and dogged about it. But nevertheless, when we read, he speaks. And then we're in the company of other Christians. And okay, sometimes the singing may not be that great. And the sermons even, anyway, we'll leave that. But nevertheless, we're singing. We're praising God together. We're listening to the word. We have fellowship over a cup of tea. And we talk about the things of God. And, and we have all these exceeding great and precious promises about the fact that we're in his grip. Not just for time, but for all eternity. I'm heaven bound. I'm looking forward to, to being with the Lord Jesus with a heavenly host to praise him and serve him throughout all eternity. Hey, we have so much for which to be thankful. Let's remind ourselves that we too are blessed, but we're up against it. The the river isn't flowing at the moment. It's just dry. So what does he do? He prays. Bring back the captivity of Zion. Restore the good fortunes. It, it, it comes twice in this passage. He, he, he prays. I think one of the joys that, I don't know, I experience as a Christian, I'm not trying to be pious or, or you know, sort of say, look how spiritual I am. I don't mean that at all. But one of the joys is to be at a, a prayer meeting where you really do business with God. As it one on Monday, as it happens, as it's another one on Wednesday. And, and there was real praying, earnest praying. The Monday one, the, the whole crowd prayed. The, the Wednesday one, small groups. I prefer the big crowd, but we'll leave that. But earnest praying. Then this morning, real praying, a proper prayer meeting where you sort of feel, yes, we've spoken to the Lord. We've poured out our hearts. We've expressed our concerns. I would beg us all to be people who at least once a week go to a proper, you know what I mean by that, a real prayer meeting. So he prays. And then we're going to see as well, he he sows. He's going to see, sow gospel seed. And as he does so, he's going to be believing the promises. Now, I think this is crucial because, again, I sort of pick up the, the vibes, just talking. And maybe I lead some of the conversation and I'm responsible for it. But I pick up the vibes that there's a sort of despondency amongst Christians. That, hey, you know, some of the things that they're legislating about. 
some of the instructions coming down to the educational authorities and the health authorities are things that we sort of feel, this is crazy, this is stupid, and it's certainly anti-Christian. What do we do about it? And they're throwing up our hands in despair. A little-known photographer by the name of Kevin Carter was sent to Sudan some years ago to cover what was going on in the country where there was a famine. On one occasion, he was snapping shots of dying children. Can you imagine doing that? When he heard a high-pitched sort of whimpering sound in the bush, he investigated and he saw a little child with dark eyes sunken back in his head and clearly he was dying. His, his belly was bloated. Flies were swarming around his, his, his head. And the child was doing his best, trying his very best to sort of crawl to a feed, feeding center just a short distance away. While Kevin Carter was standing there, a vulture came and landed just close to the child. You, you cannot imagine anything more horrific. But the photographer backed up. And got a picture of the child, the feeding centre and the vulture all in one photograph. The New York Times bought the picture and they ran it on the front page of their newspaper in 1993. The effect of the picture was so profound that really the whole world cried as they looked at it. It made the front cover of Time magazine. And 14 months later, he received the Pulitzer Prize for photography. Two months later, he drove his car to his boyhood town, parked it where he used to play as a child, attached a hose to the exhaust pipe, ran it into the side window, left the engine running idly and lay down in his seat. And in a few short minutes, he was dead. So this young photographer with a brilliant career ahead of him takes his own life. Why, why would he do something as, as destructive and damaging and stupid as that? The reason? He received hundreds of letters every day about the photograph after it was first published. They praised his picture, but almost every one of them asked exactly the same question. What happened to the child? And he had to answer, I don't know. It took me 20 minutes to set up my equipment. Then I took my picture, took down the equipment and left. And after hearing from hundreds of people asking that same question, he couldn't take it any longer. It drove him to the brink. And in the throes of hopeless despair, he took his own life. Now, we in Britain today can sit and watch and say, OK, the government isn't doing what we would like what we long for, what we preach about. The government isn't responding to our letters. The BBC is militantly antagonistic to all things Christian. We know what's happening in school, etc. We can carry on talking like this, but it's just taking the photograph. The psalmist didn't despair. He said, yeah, I, I have these amazing memories, but it's not like that now. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to sow seed. The barrenness of the Negev, that dry stream, could either be, I suppose, turned into something that was fertile by a sudden torrent or by the hard slog of farming. But either way, 
The intention of this psalmist was to turn the Negev into a flowing stream, which brings us to these last two very precious verses in this psalm. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaths with him. We've seen joy remembered. Now we have joy anticipated. Memory, rather than just being something which simply, I don't know, stirs up nostalgia, gives rise for joy and hope about what might happen. It has happened before. Well, why not again? Who knows? Even in the UK, it seems impossible. I don't even see the slightest glimmer of hope for it at the moment. But nevertheless, who knows? There may be sudden revival. There may be renewal. Maybe Christians will once again want to pray. And want to witness. And maybe once again we'll start to be fruitful. At the moment we don't see it. But it could happen. It could happen very suddenly. But there is an alternative as well. And that is that slow slog. Where every individual Christian. Each with our own strengths and weaknesses. Our own talents and abilities that God has given us. And our own being scattered into different areas of the Lord's harvest field and vineyard. Each of us starts to speak. And witness and sow in tears with the belief that we, maybe we will reap in joy. My motto for this year, and I've tried, I haven't succeeded, but I've tried every morning to remind myself of it, is a sower went forth to sow. I pray morning by morning that the Lord will open up doors of opportunity for me to speak. I want to speak to somebody every day about the Lord. And a sower went forth to sow. Lord, I'm going to scatter gospel seed here and there, and to this person, and that person. Sometimes it really is just scattering. Other times I could linger and wait and, you know, eventually try and just scatter um, and sow very, very carefully. Interestingly, after the reaping and the laughter of the first few verses, we now have weeping and sowing. And interesting, look at it carefully. Verse 5, those, that's plural, who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Verse 6, he, that's singular, So we sow together and we sow individually as well. We we come together to work on a team in in London or Bournemouth or or Italy or Portugal or or Wales or England or Southern Ireland, wherever it is. We we work as, as, as a team and we're sowing together, but then we're scattered and we sow individually. You say, oh, Roger, it's so easy for you to say that. You know, I know your personality, I know where you work, et cetera. But we're all called to this. And of course, it is going to be tough and challenging to make Christ known. It's never easy. I have an 11-year-old grandson who on Tuesday started uh, secondary school. And it's just a tiny little secondary school, 250 pupils in the whole school. You know, it's a small school, but there he is. And the RE teacher, a Muslim, starts the lesson by saying, how many of you enjoy RE? And so two hands go up. One saying, because I want to know what other people believe. And one, I'm so proud of him, but you long for it, not just when he's 11, but when he's 16 and 18. He says, because I'm a Christian and I want to learn more about Jesus. You think, yes. But it's one thing to be bold at the age of 11 when you are 16 and 17 and 18. And, and, and it's so important to you what people think of you. Yet this is tough. But there's never going to be birth without travail. 
And there can never be harvest without back-breaking sowing and maybe even back-breaking reaping. It talks about weeping. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who goes forth weeping. Where is this weeping? It's the willingness to leave the comfort of the armchair and go into the cold, to go to a prayer meeting, to go to an evangelistic meeting, to go to the open air meeting, to give out tracts, to go and just be with others who are seeking to reach out. It, it's learning to tread. It's one what sometimes it's very hard and uncomfortable soil, but we're trying to, I don't know, stir it up, plough it up so that we can sow. Weeping. Yes, sometimes we weep for past failures, but we also weep for the enormity of the task. It's huge. I don't know whether you know, probably you can feel the sophistication coming from me, but I am a Yorkshireman. And, uh, you you know, the sort of cultural vibes will be coming. They they say there are only three types of people, those who were born in Yorkshire, those who wish they were born in Yorkshire, and those who have no ambition whatsoever. And... um, (laughs) I'm a Yorkshireman, but I, I love Yorkshire. I, you, you probably never heard me mention the word before, but I love, love, love Yorkshire. But there are 5.2 million people in Yorkshire. It's the same population as Scotland. And 0.3%, 0.3, that's three in a thousand, go to any form of Bible-believing church. Three in a thousand. In Japan, it's one in a thousand. And Yorkshire, so 0.3, sorry, in Japan, it's 1%. So that's, oh, I can't work that out. But anyway, you've got the idea. We're in a desperate situation. Whole towns with no evangelical witness. And the enormity of the task makes me want to weep. And the ground seems so sterile and unprepared. And you speak, and they haven't got a clue what you're speaking about. I was in a little village, actually, this is in County Durham, called Pity Me. There really is a village called Pity Me. And I found myself, I don't know quite how, but I was in a Chinese takeaway at about um, five o'clock one evening. And, uh, and uh, I, I probably had put in an order, I don't know. But, um, and uh, there was a lady there and she just said, um, have you finished work? So I said, uh, she, she would be about 35. She was white, British woman and I said well no actually I haven't I said um, tonight I'm, I'm, I'm in the center of town and I'm going to be speaking at a Christian meeting oh right she said so what are you going to speak about so I said well I'm going to speak about Jesus and the two thieves who were crucified on either side of him and she looked and I said you know the story don't you you know that Jesus was crucified yes she said and you know, crucified next to him on either side were two things. She said, oh, no, I didn't know that. And we began to talk. She was totally clueless. But born and bred in the UK are not an idea about what Jesus has done for her. And this is the situation we're in. And, and it causes us to weep. It seems as though the, the ground in which we want to sow is unprepared. And sometimes the weather is tough. We know that. And the seed is scarce. 
I, I cannot believe how few churches these days have straightforward gospel preaching meetings. It seems though we'll skirt around it. I went to an evangelistic meeting just a week or two ago, and uh, it was the culmination of two weeks of work, and uh, families were there, and the guy stood up to give his final message to these families that they've been trying to reach. He never mentioned Jesus dying, or rising, or sin, or repentance, but it was meant to be a gospel meeting, and where is the seed? Where's the good seed to sow it? So why are we so frightened of this message? And the enemies, they're, they're plentiful. That causes us to reap. And the reed are eager to steal away the, the seed. But then, didn't the Lord Jesus weep? We know he wept for one man, Lazarus, in John 11. But he wept for a nation as well. Matthew chapter 23, as he looks over the city. Oh, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. He wept for that nation. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he weeps for a lost world. Well, if Jesus can weep, we can. Surely there should be some stirring, some emotion in our heart that this isn't just dry, academic, let's study it, let's, let's cut it apart, let's see what it... No, 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 no. There is lostness all around. And that lostness is not just for time, but for all eternity. So people I am rubbing shoulders with in a hundred years from time will either be with the Lord in glory or lost forever in hell. Do I have a responsibility? Should I weep? So we get this good seed, the gospel. Christ died for us. He was buried. He rose. He's ascended. He calls men and women to repent and will provide forgiveness. And we scatter it anywhere, everywhere. Some people will only ever see one. So we, we try and scatter a little seed by saying something or leaving a leaflet or pointing them to a good church or whatever. Uh, we just scatter this gospel seed and then we pray over it. Lord, that was very, very small. But could you do something with this? Lord, would you use it? And then we seek to harvest it. My prayer, more than any other, is I want to win souls for Jesus Christ. I want to not just be a sower, but I want to be a reaper. And, and according to this psalm, it seems as though there's a guarantee of a harvest of joy. He who continually goes forth, weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I love the verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be prosperous. I love that verse. Some time ago, I was, um, I was driving through Horsforth, where I live, and there's a furniture shop there, and in the window was a gorgeous settee. And I looked at it, I thought, oh, wow, that is rather nice. So I stopped the car and I went in and I asked the guy in the furniture shop, I said, can I just ask you, please, how much is that, that suite? And he misheard clearly, because I think he thought I asked, how many stars are there in space? Because he came out with this astronomical figure. And I said, oh, right, interesting, yes. <laughs> anyway, we got talking, and um, 
just, I don't know how we moved on to Christian things, but we did. There was nobody else in the shop, so we got talking. And I said, you know, every so often in our home, we have a, a sort of guest events we take down all the doors so we big lounge no doors on it at all and we invite people i said the most we've had is 84 we were squeezing them in and we always have a guest speaker and he just explains a little bit more about christianity and i said next time we've got one which is on such and such a date it's actually a furniture importer who's going to be speaking i'd love you to come would you like me to send you an invitation and he said yeah we can do that well, I popped into the post an invitation to him and somebody else. I didn't know whether it was a, a wife or, you know, I had no idea whether he was married. So I just said him plus one other. Well, he came with his wife, Celia, who had multiple sclerosis. And they enjoyed the evening. In fact, they came to the next one we had and the next one. In fact, we got them along to a church in Bradford and they and their two children went for about a year. But then their teenage children got bored with it and they all stopped going. And we shared Christmas cards and that was about it. And then I got a phone call from this guy and he said, Roger, Celia's died. Um, we'd really love you. She would like you. She would have liked you to speak at her funeral. So I said, well, that would be my great honour. And it was in Giggleswick Parish Church. You've got to go to Giggleswick to see it. But it's a gorgeous setting. And I preached. I preached on Psalm 23. I presume she was not a Christian. And um, I preached an evangelistic message, as comforting as I could to the family, but nevertheless explaining the gospel. And afterwards, you're mingling with people. And um, a guy just said, he said some very nice things about what I'd preached. And he, he also said, I knew we'd hear the gospel if you were speaking. And I said, um, you know, how did you know Celia? And he, he said, well, for the last 18 months, every week I'd gone and done a Bible study with her. She was lying in bed and I just would do a Bible study. I said, really? I said, why do you think she was a Christian then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, she was certainly a Christian. She was converted when she heard a furniture importer in your house. <laughs> but I, I never, I never knew I never knew. I beg us, let's not spiral into despair. Yes, let's recall the past and praise God for the amazing things that happened with, with Luther. You know, the Reformation, wow, incredible movement across Europe. Let's praise God for that. Let's praise God for the, the tremendous revival that began in the early 1700s and carried on for a good century and a bit and, and the impact that it made across the world as missionaries were sent out and, and social change. Let's praise God for all of that. Let's praise God for the C.H. Spurgeons. Let's thank God for all that Billy Graham accomplished in preaching the gospel and hundreds converted. But we're not living in those days today. So we pray. And we go out scattering gospel seed. Who knows? God might send that torrent. But if not, we'll go forth bearing precious seed. Yes, yeah, sometimes weeping. And, and it can be incredibly painful when people reject not so much you or me, but Jesus. It hurts me more than I can ever tell. But nevertheless, we carry on. We sow, we scatter, and we have this promise. Shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Lord, we're looking to you to keep your word. And meanwhile, with great joy, we'll go and proclaim Jesus. Let's pray, shall we?